don't touch that app. You found Thinking Through Autonomy. Today's episode focuses on the race to find the money that fuels the drone and driverless revolutions. Today I'm speaking with Caitlin Henry, and she's an associate with OpenView Venture Partners, and they're an expansion stage software-focused venture capital firm up there in Boston. We'll be talking about the basics of what an investor is looking for when it comes to investments in autonomy, how they evaluate your company, your team, your technology, and that little thing called the exit strategy. OpenView has a unique business model that features partnership between the investor and the company. They don't have a fund it and run and then exit strategy. They're in it for the long haul. She's on the investment team bringing deals into this pipeline. Formerly, Caitlin was at Amazon and worked on machine learning projects in Amazon's worldwide consumer engagement team. This episode was recorded September 23, 2019. And by means of that dreaded disclosure, neither this podcast nor its parent company has any financial ties to OpenView. They don't invest in us and we don't invest in them. We are just happy having a podcast and we're not looking for money to start a network. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Caitlin, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, let me just say, you have this absolutely fabulous resume. It not only spans investing across really some of the hottest markets in tech, but also includes the stint at Amazon where you oversaw their portfolio and machine learning. And, you know, right before the show, we were talking that, you know, if I was a lazy host, I would just sit there and ask you, hey, tell us about yourself, Caitlin, and throw you a softball, but uh, I don't want to be that host. So I want to play a quick word association game so that our listeners can kind of get a better feel for who you are. And, you know, if it it doesn't work out, I'll talk to Aaron, the producer, and we'll just remove any traces of it from the final broadcast. You on with that? I'm all for it. Let's do it. Okay. First words, San Luis Obispo. Uh, Climbing Bishop Peak. Cal Poly. Learn by doing. Innovation Quest. Ooh, a lot of hard work. You're going to like this next one. Spot drop. Oh boy, even more hard work. (laughs) Surfing. Uh, Stood up twice. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon. Now wait, you may have a disclosure that, not disclosure that says you can't answer this. Amazon. Great place to work. Machine learning. Uh, A lot of hype, but a lot of really incredible stuff as well. AI. Definitely hype. Open view. Fantastic place to work and to uh, build a company. So, Caitlin, um, I opened the show um, with a really brief description of OpenView, but I'd like to dive into the OpenView business model a little bit because I think it's rather unique among the investment community. So, the firm seems to view itself as a partner rather than just an investor. What kind of mindset is that when you go in and you look at a company? How does a partner look at a company versus just the investor? Yeah, I mean, the expansion model that we have at OpenView and the support model that we have for helping our companies was honestly a huge reason why I chose to work here um, out of all the other venture firms that are out there. 
we have essentially this team of folks that are working as full-time strategists for our investment portfolio. Totally separate from the people like me who are doing the boring VC stuff at the end of the day. Like these guys spend really meaningful time with our portfolio companies and try to put effort into making them better, um, giving them a full-time set of resources where they may not have otherwise had that. So I, I'm honestly surprised that it's as much of a differentiator in the venture capital world as it is. You know, you'd think that for the sake of both, you know, putting all the energy that you can into helping your company succeed, as well as, you know, just even keeping an eye on your investment, if you want to look at it from that angle, you'd think more people would want to do this. But um, it, it truly is different than a lot of the other venture capital firms that that I've run into. And I think when we think about how we partner with companies, it's really with this idea of how can we how can we build something together? You know, let's keep the entrepreneur in control, doing what they do best and really just giving them any sort of pattern recognition or extra set of hands where we can to help, you know, tweak some of the the fine-tuned things. So, you know, obviously investing is all about performance. And I'm wondering, how do you go ahead and quantify that business model versus other business models that are out there? I mean, is there a target number that you can point to and say, you know, this is how much more successful we are? Is there a gut feeling you can point to to? You know, how how do you put your arms around saying, hey, we're actually making more money doing it this way than if we did it another way? Totally. And we actually, after each project that we run with our portfolio companies, we sit down and we think about the ROI, both, you know, qualitatively, is this, does this feel better to the company? Are they happy with the results? But also really, really quantitatively. We've done projects in, you know, pricing, for example, that have produced like real meaningful additional revenue for, for our portfolio companies. And that's something that, you know, turns directly back into returns for us. So it's a perfect win-win situation. Or maybe we'll do a uh, customer segmentation project where we identify a totally new set of customers that these folks could be going after, help them capture it, which again, you know, produces more revenue for the company. And at the end of the day, better returns for us. So there really is a quantifiable way to tie this back to better investment outcomes. And we, we try to maintain a really data-driven approach to that when we think about it at OpenView. So as I think about worries in a business model like that is, do you think that a company that you may investment invest in or a company that you do invest in might look at OpenView's participation as some sort of a crutch, and therefore they're going to lose some of their hunger and they'll say, well, OpenView will take care of that for us. How do you keep OpenView from, you know, being a crutch, quite frankly? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. You know, I think at the end of the day, what, what we can do is, is supplement great things that are already there. If your business is is truly, you know, not going to go anywhere unless someone like OpenView can come in and and help, you know, jiggle some of the puzzle pieces together, you know, it's it's probably not likely that we're actually going to be able to do that much for you anyways. I'd say, you know, the entrepreneurs are putting in 99.9% of the work. At the end of the day, we can provide some help with pattern recognition, with, you know, maybe helping them prioritize something that they may not be able to. But, you know, I really don't think it ends up being a crutch at the end of the day, just because so much has to already be in place from all of the hard work that the entrepreneur has done in order for this model to even work. Um, you know, we're certainly not building businesses from the ground up. There's a ton of work that's been laid before that. And we actually, you know, if anything, we view the entrepreneur as a, as a crutch for us to be able to do our job well, because if they've done a fantastic job building their business, it makes, you know, our tiny little marginal improvements all that much easier. So then you fall back to 
you know, being the investor and, and not the driver. You leave that to the folks who started and, and built and run the company. 100%. I mean, they're going to know their world 10 times better, you know, 100 times better than I ever could. So while, you know, we want to be there if they want us there to help, to maybe provide some some guidance at the end of the day, the entrepreneur is is 100% driving this entire thing forward. I want to talk now a little bit about a flagship company that you're investing in, and that's part of your portfolio called Bellina. And I think some listeners are going to remember that as a company called Resin. They mm -hmm. provide infrastructure to manage groups of connected devices on the Internet of Things. But I think what I just described maybe just scratches the surface of their capabilities. Can you share a little bit about the Bellina story? Yeah. Um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with what they do. They're, they're a complete set of tools for building, deploying, and managing software on IoT devices or edge devices. And really the thing that we were compelled by with Bellina was that, you know, rather than asking developers to like learn an entire different way of, of writing code, which you often have to do for edge devices because writing software for a sensor is different than writing software for a web application. Belina did a fantastic job of really just abstracting some of those principles down into container-based workflows, things that web developers were totally familiar with. And really, you know, it's it's going to sound a little hyperbolic, but these guys are, are truly just unlocking the power of what you can do at the edge because it no longer becomes a question of, hey, I don't think I have the, the tools to be able to do this or I don't understand how to do it. Now you can truly, with a pretty basic set of, of web development skills, can write something for the edge, can make an idea that you had for an IoT device come to life. Um, and I think that's what we found super powerful about the Belena story. How did you find them? They've got this compelling story. I mean, did they just cold call you? Were they in a pitch competition? Actually, I mean, I, I know that they were an existing company, but how do you go about finding you know, these flagship companies that you want to feature in your portfolio? We actually built the relationship with Belena over a number of years, you know, far before my time at uh, at OpenView. We had met them, I think, at reInvent a couple of years back and had, you know, just exchanged a, some really positive conversations with their CEO, Alex, and really just stayed in touch with them over time, you know, provided advice where it was helpful, had conversations about what they were doing and connected them with people that we hope, thought would be helpful to them. But really, it was kind of happenstance in the beginning and then continuing to build a relationship with them over time that, you know, eventually gave us the the opportunity to to come along their journey. You know, I think very rarely do these things totally come out of the blue without putting in a ton of work beforehand. There's there's a huge thing to be said for building the relationship with these companies and being genuinely helpful, even far beyond or before the time when it makes sense for you to invest. And I think any investor that says, hey, I'm only going to talk to companies when they're within six months of, of looking to raise a round that's right for me, I don't think that really behooves you to finding these true you know, generational companies that stand the test of time. Well, two of their customers um, are companies called Autirion and Skycatch, and they're cloud-based service providers for the drone industry. And I'm just wondering how you as an investor and OpenView as a company kind of put your arms around potential investments like Belina, which is counting on revenue from at least one industry that is very young, very volatile, and there's really no certainty around it. How do, how do you look at that revenue stream? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think, you know, be it, be it something like autonomous vehicles, be it something like drones or another emergent 
industry like blockchain. I think a lot of investors, you know, including including myself and some of my partners at OpenView, though some may have a different perspective. Um, it's really exciting to be able to bet on the picks and shovels that will enable the end users at the end of the day. Um, you know, rather than betting on a specific way that drones are going to be used to improve society or a specific way that blockchain is going to be implemented. I think really at the end of the day, what's exciting to me as an investor is who are the people building the tools that will allow an entrepreneur sitting in their garage to say, hey, I, you know, I have extreme expertise in e-commerce delivery. How, how can I use this set of tools to be able to make my idea come to life rather than telling someone, hey, you know, we think this is the best way to do drone delivery. So really, I think betting on the picks and shovels at the end of the day, I think that's, uh, you know, where we both hedge our bets as investors to say, you know, we're, we're not going to bet on one specific application that could go up or down. We're going to bet on the technology as a whole um, and allow people with the expertise in a particular domain to really be able to build out what they think is right. Let's just step back just a little bit. And I want to go through maybe the mechanics of working with you or a person like you or a firm like OpenView. And I'm kind of wondering, when you sit down with, with the key partners and the associates and, and everyone in your firm, how do you start the process of identifying a company or a market segment that you might have an interest in? What, what kind of defines interest within regards to the portfolio we're offering versus interest because it personally i find it interesting yeah no it's a great question and i think investors are always naturally going to be drawn to technologies or industries that they have experience in and understand a little bit more you know from my time in the machine learning world at amazon you know even though it was brief i i find myself really drawn to a lot of machine learning tools because i worked on a team that was trying to build out models um, so there's always going to be an element of personal interest that I think will help investors sniff out stuff that, you know, they've spent time in and that they find interesting. But I also think something that, that we do at OpenView that a ton of other firms do is spending time on the ground with people that aren't founders and that aren't investors. You know, if, if I go talk to the CMO at GitHub, what are her most pressing problems? What are the things that don't exist right now that she really wants to be out there? Or, you know, with Spot Drop, for example, when we were working in the vineyard irrigation world, um, I spent a ton of time talking to vineyard managers and farmers, not talking to people that were building solutions for those folks, but really asking the people on the ground, the end users at the end of the day, what do you want that doesn't exist yet? And that honestly, those conversations for me drive a lot more of where I want to spend my time then perhaps kind of, you know, what you may be hearing about, you know, in buzz in a certain industry or just what other investors are talking about. I really try to just hone in on the end user at the end of the day who has a much more acute understanding of their problem than I do and try to go out and find people that are solving those problems. Sure. So let's say I am lucky enough to get a couple minutes in the shark tank and you're there, you're one of the judges. What's the pitch? in autonomous technology that will hold your interest for more than a couple pages. You know, what's what's the secret sauce where say one minute into a pitch, you know if if you have interest or you don't. And, and specifically, you know, with autonomous vehicles because this is thinking through autonomy, you know. Yeah. I guess I'll caveat that a little bit by saying that, you know, investors are certainly not a homogenous group. I think a lot of people want us to be. They want to say, you know, what do VCs look for at the end of the day? But in reality, 
it's going to be super different from group to group. So, you know, while I, I may be super interested in, you know, developer tools for autonomous vehicles or software and the analytics side of things, I, I've got a friend, you know, here in Boston who he thinks really fundamentally that there's going to be one core hardware winner at the end of the day who will be responsible for every sensor on every autonomous vehicle for the foreseeable future. That's a super attractive opportunity. It's not something that I'm personally interested in, but um, obviously that's something that's going to produce fantastic returns for whoever goes in to that opportunity. So I'll, I'll punt the question a little bit by saying, I think people are going to be really different in what they look for. And as a founder, the thing that I can, you know, would encourage you to do is really spend as much time as you can getting to know the firm, understanding when they're trying to exit companies what types of things they've invested in the past to really get a sense of what messages, you know, more qualitatively will resonate with them. I think that one thing that all of the investors I've talked to have in common, especially when it comes to emerging technologies, is what's going to hold our interest at the end of the day is really the CEO and the founding team. You're making a ton of bets at the beginning of an emerging technology, be it autonomous vehicles or anything else. I'm going to do as much as I can to diligence a few fail safes on the back end, you know, things like market size, um, regulation, various things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm accepting that there's going to be a pretty big storm to weather. Um, and if I meet someone that I, I can look at and say, I really think you're the one that when this all goes south, you'll find a way out of it. That's, you know, going to be more compelling than anything else. And I think it becomes especially important in emerging markets when there's quite frankly, just not as much data to go off of. So you mentioned teams, you mentioned leadership. Let's just talk a little bit about that because there's this incredibly fascinating article in the New York Times on September 22nd, and it essentially talks about the lifespan of a university education in tech. And if I read it correctly, it says that within about 10 years of leaving school, somebody's education is obsolete. So what I'm wondering is, does that mean that when you take a look at a company and you look at their um, engineers and you look at their team, and if you see a team that's filled with recent college graduates, that gets more attention from the investment community than, say, a team filled with 30-somethings? And I just hope I don't have a bunch of millennials jumping out of windows right now. <laughs> No, I think it's a really fair question. And, you know, being part of a millennial generation myself, I'm sure it's tempting for me as an investor to single out people that look and feel and talk like me. So I try really as much as I can to, to take a step back, be data driven where possible. Actually, at OpenView, we just put out this SAS benchmarks report where we looked at a ton of different characteristics of public companies. And one of the things that we found was that companies with founders over the age of 30 were actually producing a significantly higher median growth rate than companies with founders that are under the age of 30. So there's data to back up that experience means something. And I think, you know, from a more qualitative standpoint, even in my time at Amazon, I found that there was a ton of value in having both younger folks and more experienced folks at the table. There's just certain lessons that you can't learn in a university setting, no matter what. Experience is the only thing that can teach you a ton of different things about the world. So having people that have gone through that, I think, is really, really important. And I learned a ton from my peers at Amazon that had been around the e-commerce world far longer than I had. But at the same time, I also had a set of lessons to teach them, whether it be about, you know, a, a specific technology that I learned about in school or, you know, trends that I resonated with a little bit more than they did. I actually think that dialogue is more important than anything else. So I would actually, as an investor, find a ton of conviction behind a team that had, you know, both 
greener folks as well as more experienced folks than one that biased too heavily towards one or the other. Which makes me wonder, Caitlin, what do you think about, you know, I'm going to refer to them as gray hair startups. You have <laughs> people, you know, maybe starting a second career, maybe people who are entering their retirement who have this lifetime of experience and they say, here's the idea that only if my company would have paid attention to, you know, X years ago, we would have made a fortune. Do you see examples of successful gray hair startups or is that really not something that really has a high probability of, of, of success? Oh my gosh, there's tons of gray-haired startups that are incredibly successful. Again, just because these are the folks that usually at the end of the day have the most experience, hopefully, with the customer problem. You know, I'm, I'm stretching for exact facts and figures out of my head, but again, if, if the, the benchmark report that we put out was you know anywhere near of an indication, I would imagine that as you get a little bit older down the line and just have seen a, a few more things, you're actually going to produce better returns. So I think that there's there's a ton of success in these sort of you know call it gray haired, call it more experienced, whatever you want to say, startups. Um, mainly just because they've probably seen this problem firsthand um, versus just speculating about it in a classroom or in you know sort of a more distant setting. Which maybe brings me back to a question about the beginning of the process. When you sit down with a company, at what point do you have an exit strategy formulated for them and, and really formulated for your money? Is that something where you have it figured out on the ground floor or does the exit strategy become something that you maybe grow into as you understand your relationship between your investors your company and, you know, really making a profit for your company. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's certainly a difference between having an exit strategy and having your exit strategy be what actually happens at the end of the day. No relationship between the two? <laughs> Little to no sometimes. Okay. Um, well, all right. But I, I think what we, what we try, you know, exit of course has to be something that, that we discuss early on in the investment. You know, at the end of the day, a venture capital firm's job is to make returns on behalf of its limited partners. I think that's a super important thing for entrepreneurs to remember. You know, VCs are fantastic people at the end of the day, but remember that their incentives, while aligned with yours, you know, if it is to grow your company, they do have a responsibility to their limited partners at the end of the day. And they're going to be framing the investment around that. So I think while we, the biggest things that we try to do is just, you know, discuss what type of company the entrepreneur wants to build. You know, do you want to build a generational software company? Do you want to IPO? Because not every company does. Some people want to, you know, grow the company for three years, five years, and then exit at a, at a fantastic valuation to a strategic partner. And that's great. There's a ton of ways in order there's a ton of ways that you can grow a company and eventually exit it. And I think just making sure that you and the entrepreneur are aligned on what you want to do, that's really all you can ask for at the end of the day. Because if your entrepreneur wants to build a generational software company that IPOs and you don't think that's realistically going to happen at the end of the day, you're not going to be in a position to give them good advice or your incentives aren't going to be aligned at the end of the day. So just making sure you're on the same page about the plan, even though the plan will most likely fail, uh, I think that's the most important thing. And is that also another way of saying there's no hard and fast rules that say, well, I've made 10 times my initial investment, it's time to go? 100%. You know, 
you are very much as an investor making calls in real time about what the best thing is to do. Um, especially as your companies grow, they may get multiple acquisition offers and you're going to have to go through that with the entrepreneur in real time saying, all right, do we think that this is good enough for you, the entrepreneur and what you want? Um, do we think we can go further or do we really think that this is, you know, the point where we should all uh, decide to wrap this up in an exit to a strategic or something like that? Um, so it's very much an ongoing conversation and it evolves as, uh, as the market evolves and as the company grows. Let's just transition back a little bit to a subject we spoke about in bits and pieces through the first part of this conversation, and that's the whole topic of autonomy. And I'm wondering generally, what do you think, where are the investment opportunities in driverless cars and drones and robotics, especially when these are just, you know, emergent technologies to, to say the least? Yeah, um, honestly, I thought, or I am currently thinking about these markets in a super similar way to the way that I thought about the Blaina investment um, and the IoT market in general. I think something that really stood out to me about that investment process was that when we went and looked at you know top-down analyst reports on the industry, I feel like I've been hearing hype forever about how IoT and connected devices are going to change my life. Um, and what we found the super interesting trend that each year a report would come out and it would have to significantly cut down their estimate on the market size from the year before. So while I had felt a lot of buzz around this emerging IoT technology, there was something that wasn't quite matching up about the data. Um, and so we, I really tried to dive in and get a sense of where dollars were actually flowing and when that actually was turning into an actionable project versus just something that we like to talk about. Um, and we based a lot of our ideas around the Belena investment off of what that trigger point was um, and when you started actually seeing projects come to life. And so I think as I think about this larger world of autonomous vehicles, of drones, of anything like that, um, it's it's difficult to say where things are going to be the most successful. But the way I've been trying to think about it now is understand what the biggest sticking points are. What are the things that are the reason drones, which we have all you know, heard the hype that this is going to change our lives for the better? Why aren't they that right now? And where, where do they have the most opportunity to be that? Is that specific to a particular product or a uh, you know, a specific geography? Really trying to hone in on those sticking points I think is what's been driving my investment theses at the end of the day. So let's maybe just hit drones just a little bit since you, you brought it up. There are those within the drone industry that point the finger at the federal government and to a lesser degree at uh, municipalities saying, if it wasn't for these regulations, if it wasn't for these lack of regulations, is it what if it wasn't for the lack of guidance, we would have this blossoming drone industry and Amazon would be dropping off packages at your front door. Is that maybe too convenient of finger pointing, do you think? <laughs> I'll, I'll caveat the whole thing by, by saying, you know, I, you know, primarily being a software investor, there's a really specific part of the, the drone world that I'll look at. And I think um, there's a lot, a lot of moving parts in this whole thing. I think finger pointing to regulation is, it, it can often be a shortcut. It's a significant thing to consider when, when growing a company, but there's a lot of ways in which you can build your startup 
in the world that exists today, especially because you're probably thinking about your solution in the parameters of what people value today. So while I think that, you know, it sounds really nice to finger point it and say that regulation is the sole reason why we don't have a, you know, society that's been perfectly optimized by drones, it's very rarely the only problem. Um, I think in the cases where it has been the only problem, you found companies, you know, often find a way to circumvent that, you know, take Uber or Lyft, for example, you know, inserting their technology into cities, you know, sometimes where they didn't always have the permission from the city to be there, you know, they found a way because the value was there at the end of the day. And if it was truly just the regulation stopping them, they often found a way to make it work retroactively. Um, so I'm not positive on this, but my hypothesis would be that regulation is not the only thing stopping the drone industry from blossoming into the, the vision that we've been fed it could be. If we were to maybe discuss just in the most general sense, you know, timelines around investments in driverless cars and drones and robotics, what does that curve look like, you know, in, in terms of what you're seeing? Are we at the peak and things are dying when it comes to investments? Are we not even starting that journey to seeing the real serious money go in? Where do you think we are? So it's interesting. If you look at the the data for, I believe this is investments in drones specifically. We've got a couple of years back in which the investment amount, you know, call it close to 10x. It's it's some crazy, crazy spike like that. So you have, you know, fairly steady investment for a while. You see a huge spike. And actually in recent, you know, past two years, it's gone down a little bit. And I think that this actually closely, you know, while I don't have exact figures on how this specific market worked, you know, anecdotally, it follows a similar story to how I felt the the smart home industry worked. Um, there was this whole wave of products that came out for, for the smart home that were being built simply because we had the technology to build them. Um, there wasn't a lot of thought put behind the end application of, of whether or not that's useful and who that provides value to at the end of the day. So you saw this huge spike in creation of smart home products um, that was followed by a relatively long and significant downturn when people were either, you know, staying steady with the products that worked or discontinuing products entirely. Um, and I think with both the introduction of, of voice as well as just a little bit more thoughtful product development, we've actually seen the number of uh, smart home products, you know, go back up again. And I think drones and autonomous vehicles in general are going to follow this same curve. So, you know, I, while there certainly was a spike, and I think we may be, you know, at the edge of the first spike, um, followed by potentially a little bit of a lull or a slightly slower growth rate than before, um, it, it's entirely possible that goes back up again, especially as we start thinking through a lot of these tough problems that we're now running into, be it around regulation, be it around the end value that this actually provides the user and how to build for that. Um, it all goes through cycles. So I wouldn't say that we're at the peak of anything right now. Um, I think there's a lot of sticky questions that we're running into about investing in these type of technologies that will maybe slow things down for a little bit. But I, I have no doubt that this is not the end um, or the lope or the high point as we know it. So Caitlin, is it safe to say that while we're waiting for that driverless car to pick us up or we're waiting for that drone to deliver the package to our front door, that there are components, there is software, there are compelling parts of that ecosystem that really warrant a, a strong look by the investing community. I think yes. 
where I think investors, again, you know, I've, I've made this point before. Um, so hopefully I don't sound too much like a broken record, but um, if you as an investor buy in to the idea that this technology will exist in the world in some way, shape or form in the future, which, you know, there's been very few technologies that we've seen emerged that have totally fallen off the map, you know, be it to regulation or anything like that, you know, things may be curbed, but they very rarely disappear entirely. So if you as an investor accept that this technology will exist in some way, shape or form in the future, even if it's different than how you think it will be now, you're probably going to invest in the software or the technologies that will allow that exploration or that movement to happen regardless of whether or not a specific application goes up and down. So again, it comes back to this idea of how do we invest in developers? How do we invest in the people closest to the problem and give them a set of tools versus betting on a particular application? I think that world is very exciting to at least me personally as an investor and some of the investors that I spend my time with right now, especially at this moment in time, as there are a lot of questions around what this looks like, even if, especially if you consider it in the grand frame of what you would call a typical VC investment horizon of, you know, 10 years or less, let's say. Yeah, I think those are really the spots where I gravitate towards and, you know, some of the people that I spend my time with gravitate towards. And is there a buzz within your networks about things like perception systems, whether it's LIDAR, whether it's camera based, whether it's radar based or whether it's a solid state LIDAR technologies? Uh, you know, are, are those things generating interest or is that still part of the background noise? Absolutely. They're, they're generating a ton of buzz and, you know, new technologies always will. I think where I've found that I really resonate with with investors is in the folks that are willing to take a step back and say, hey, I'm not the expert in this technology. I think especially when it comes to these really complex things like computer vision systems or LIDAR or anything else, if you have an investor that says that they are you know, more uniquely positioned than the CEO of a company or a head engineer to tell you why one system is going to be better over the other, I'd question where that VC is getting their information. Um, or I'd question whether or not they're really trusting the people that are closest to the end user at the end of the day. So, you know, the buzz will always be there, but I think that most VCs try to do a good job of saying, hey, you know, we can look at this system from a high level, but let's let the people that really know it best, you know, play this battle out and do what we can to support the people that we think will know how to ride that wave. Caitlin, in our last couple of minutes together, I just want to talk a little bit more about AI fatigue and your investing philosophy. You and I were recently at a forum at MIT CSAIL in May, and I heard one of your competitors say something very close to, if I hear another pitch that includes the words AI, I'm going to throw up. Is there AI <laughs> investment fatigue? What is causing this? And what's all of this consternation about mentioning the words AI? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't say I totally disagree with that sentiment, but uh Really, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in the power of shared language. Um, you know, am I a huge fan that the word AI has become synonymous both with fairly basic computer algorithms as well as this, you know, futuristic idea of a robot that can think and feel like humans do? No, but 
you know, at the end of the day, I'm willing to accept that 99% of the time, the word AI is meant to help me and the general population shortcut to just saying, I use a lot of data to understand a problem. So, you know, certainly while I'm not really enthusiastic about uh, a founder coming in and telling me that they've built this incredible AI that's better than everything else, I understand that at the end of the day, you're trying to communicate something. And I'm willing to, you know, both take your technology at what it is and let's let's talk about the problem and the the value that you're giving to the end user at the end of the day. But I'm also willing to sit there and accept that, all right, this may not be a super complex machine learning based or neural network based system. But the thing is, is that if they've built a product that gives value to the end customer at the end of the day, like it doesn't matter what technology you use. So, you know, I, I'd really encourage founders to step away a little bit from this, you know, my mousetrap is better than, than everyone else's and really just focus on the end user at the end of the day. That's going to be a much more compelling message to, to me as an investor than just saying, you know, I, I built this incredible AI engine. Yeah, I, I really wish people used it less, but I'm more than happy to accept that AI is a shared word that, that society has accepted for talking more broadly about this world of big data. Well, it, it also seems that the marketing folks in these startup companies are, are maybe misrepresenting what they're trying to do. I, you know, I, I'd like to think that if I went to one of the nation's top schools and left with a degree that involves machine learning, I would know the difference between generally using the word AI and then using, you know, machine learning for what I was doing. I mean, do you think that maybe people in some of these startups are trying to pull a fast one where they're thinking, ah, oh, the money's not going to understand what we're doing because this is so incredibly complex and we're going to call something really simple um, AI and try to get away with it? You know, I, I don't think anyone's trying to deceive people at the end of the day. I think that if you rely too heavily on AI as your primary marketing message, there's probably some element of value that you're not delivering that you could you know, better rely on instead. You know, as part of my diligence process for the investments that we make here at OpenView, we spend a ton of time talking to customers of the startups that we're looking to invest in. And I have never once heard a customer say, you know what, I chose this because the AI was better or, you know, that the algorithm was better at the end of the day. They're always going to talk about time savings, about cost savings. And perhaps AI can help you deliver that, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to. So while I think that, you know, I, I certainly don't think any founder is trying to deceive people by using AI as a marketing message, I think they'd just be missing the point. And if you lean too heavily on AI versus end value, you might want to take a look at whether or not you're actually providing value at the end of the day and if that message is resonating with your customers. And, and I'm just wondering, does that mean that when you evaluate a potential investment, you go down to the code level to understand, hey, this is exactly what they're doing with machine learning. This is um, how the algorithms are being used. Or do you maybe stop a level above that so you're not looking at the code, so to speak? I mean, we have a very rigorous technical due diligence process um, that happens much later on in the investment where we just go into the code, you know, to a pretty granular level with experts in our OpenView ecosystem. 
um, just to make sure that they've they've built what they've said they've built. So, you know, that's going to be part of the standard due diligence process of any investor. But, um, you know, in the earlier parts of the conversation, one, for the sake of time and two, because it's it's really the thing that matters at the end of the day, we're willing to talk about the product and, you know, the what's happening on the back end at a pretty high level again, with the end goal of really being able to focus on what does this do for your customer at the end of the day? Because that's going to be far more important than the code that's underneath the hood. No investor will make a solid investment without, you know, doing some diligence and checking that you built what you said you built. But there's a lot of factors outside of that that matter a lot more at the end of the day. Well, stepping back now just for a little bit, you know, you are an East Coast venture capitalist who happened to start on the West Coast in Silicon Valley. And I am just wondering um, about this this West to East migration of yours. Um, do you find a difference in the investing philosophies between the coasts? Uh, is there, you know, I'll call it an East, po- East Coast personality versus a West Coast personality? Or is the investment community now pretty homogenous in how they approach investments? Yeah, I think when I made the jump from West to East Coast, I was also making the jump from startups and from operations to investing. So I actually haven't been an investor on the West Coast, but you know, I think in my time being on both sides of the table and then making that geographic transition, I've I definitely have noticed a trend that I think East Coast investors are just a little bit more pragmatic in their approach, which, you know, could be a double-sided coin. I think you may find people that say, "Hey, East Coast investors may not take as, as big of a risk, which I actually don't think is is true. I've seen plenty of East Coast investors that take pretty heavy risks, especially at the early t- stages of a company. But at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think we are a little bit more pragmatic than a West Coast investor. I think, I think that pragmatism, though, usually ends up being attractive to a founder at the end of the day. Not always, but, you know, this is part of the matchmaking process of finding an investor that works works for you and, you know, believes in the same things that you believe in. But um, I've actually had a number of founders that come to me and say, hey, we're looking exclusively at East Coast investors or we're straying away from Bay Area investors because they may be pushing this, you know, growth at all costs mindset. Um, they may not be thinking as as realistically about the future and what that may be. And I think founders have often seen that firsthand that East Coast investors will be a little bit more realistic there. So there's certainly a personality difference. You know, every investor is also different. So you'll find plenty of examples of East Coast investors that feel like West Coast investors and West Coast investors that feel like East Coast investors. But um, the difference is there at the end of the day. And I think it just breeds slightly different approaches um, and attracts different entrepreneurs at the end of the day. One of the things I just want to close this podcast with is maybe get your thoughts on east coast versus west coast when it comes to the pipeline from investing in something you know starting early on from friends and family all the way to an ipo it it seems to me and and as you and i discussed um i'm not in the vest in the investment business at all um but if you look at the west coast starting at the university level until practically the ip ipo level there is a pipeline. There's a pipeline um, which is well-developed, which is very machine-like, which I think the investment community out on the West Coast has spent a great deal of time, energy, money, and maybe happenstance putting together. If you look at the East Coast, 
there's maybe not necessarily that pipeline. Um, you know, certainly if I'm standing in front of CSAIL at MIT, I'm looking across the street and nearly every tech company in the world has an office there, which, you know, is clearly to convince the ideas at MIT and also the um, talent at MIT to maybe gravitate that way. But it doesn't strike me that much as being a well-oiled machine and pipeline. Is that kind of a fair thing to say or or not? You know, I think that Boston, as well as the East Coast and New England scene in general, actually is a super strong pipeline. Um, you know, if you look at the places where venture capital dollars have been spent, Boston is right behind San Francisco. Um, not right behind so much from the dollar sense, but, um, you know, Boston in particular is the second best place behind San Francisco to to build a startup. We've got the most venture dollars, even above New York. I believe the last figures were from 2018. I think, too, because of the schools and innovation hubs that you have here, we actually do quite a bit to encourage early stage ideas. What I think the difference that you'll find is that, again, because there is a more pragmatic person here, both from the founder side, I think, as well as the investor side, you're going to have people be a little more, more cautious in how they build their startups, which you know may not result in quite as large of a top of funnel. But I would imagine if you dug into the data, what you would actually come to see is actually a larger proportion of startups are set up to succeed here on the East Coast versus on the West Coast. I think there's a ton of value in being able to create that top of funnel and encourage anyone with an idea to be able to go out and, and build it but you're also gonna see pretty high failure rates from that. So I think New England is actually really well positioned to be a place where really enduring companies are built, um, potentially more so than, than on the West Coast. And I think, you know, hopefully everyone in the venture capital community, as well as the founding community will really start to gravitate more towards this. You know, how do I be enduring? How do I, you know, potentially not think about growth at all costs, don't be profitable for 20 years, but, you know, think about what's gonna stand the test of time. I'd hope everyone shifts a little bit more towards that, but I actually think the East Coast is is leading the way in those type of investments. Caitlin, on that, I just want to tell you, I enjoyed this conversation just so much. And I really look forward to watching Belina grow, looking at your portfolio grow, and I wish you much success in the investments to come. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ken. This is a fantastic conversation. Thank you. 